0: Uh that's okay. I came up with a whole new show idea. (laughs) All right, all right, ready? Good morning and welcome to Revved Up and Hot, the revolutionary talk show that gets a little steamy and the only place where you get answers to the questions others are afraid to ask, like who's the most attractive revolutionary in history and why is it Thomas Sankara? Who's the most fatherly revolutionary? And no the answer isn't Papa Stalin. Or These days, what's the best way to find the hammer to your sickle? And how it's okay if there's a paintbrush, compass, and/or gear in there for good measure? Some just like a highly social life under socialism, and that's okay. Whew, are we in the back of a delivery truck? Because damn, it's hot in here. It's time to start the show. Let's get social. (laughs)
1: <laughs> there's nothing I love better. There's nothing I love better than including a paintbrush and a compass in my in my flag. And I don't even think you should have to be socialist to do it. Like, what's that country? Is it El? No. Uh, there's an African Angola that just has a like a sword on their flag. Why not toss a paintbrush in there?
0: <laughs> so yeah, what do you think of my new show idea?
1: <laughs> Terrible. Oh, it's all right. Um, I, I kind of take offense to the idea that the hottest and most fatherly revolutionary figures are not both Vladimir Lenin. But other than that, you know, he, he was a big proponent of nudism. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but it, it seems like there are some historical documents that indicate Lenin thought it was a good idea for people to occasionally take long walks out in the wilderness without any clothes on.
0: Huh. I've never heard yeah. that.
2: I've yeah, also you can never Google heard it.
0: that, but sure. Yeah, I well, mean, Dan has never heard it. It means it's fake.
2: <laughs> I do. I do love though the like recurring joke that I guess came out of the like era of collapse and shock uh, therapy that Lennon was a mushroom. <laughs> oh man, Google that one. It's bizarre. I've, I've heard <laughs> I'm, I'm that, sorry, but I am. Like... I am... Yeah, I'm at a loss. I've heard that, that one. one, but I'm not
1: familiar with the background. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't think I can do it justice explaining it. I think if, if people look it up, they'll figure it out. But yeah, no. <laughs> well, if we anyway. really
0: want to start like a uh, not a tabloid show, but like a talk radio relationship advice style show, uh, we've got a great premise right there, revved up and hot. We're gonna need a soundboard if we're gonna make that <laughs> or, switch yeah, for sure. I was-
1: I was thinking a long-form investigation into the origins of Lenin the mushroom, and we would call it like Marxist mycology or something.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Although with what we know now about mushrooms, isn't all mycology kind of inherently Marxist, if you're doing it
0: right? Probably yes. I,
1: I, I think I think you're referring to the um, collective and distributed processing yes. uh, that mushrooms seem to do in terms of whatever we could consider like a consciousness level that exists within them. And to that end, I would have to say I agree with you. But there's a certain little like. Weird bit of like scientific Marxist in the back of my brain that's like that is not a sustainable hypothesis. You can't isolate that and test it. (laughs) (laughs) What what world historical conditions would you use as guidelines or as control groups. It makes no sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I do think the one part of the though. thing that I wrote that we're sleeping on, though, the is are we in the back of a delivery truck? Because, damn, I, it's hot in here. I, I, that was <laughs> yeah, uh, I know, I that. noticed.
2: I that was, that was like, <laughs> oh, hey, you got the topical reference to the actual show in
1: there. There we go. <laughs> That's right. Well, and as long as we're uh, getting topical... <laughs> Podcast, everybody. This is another episode of Work Stoppage. My name is John.
0: I'm Dan. And I'm Lena.
2: And
1: we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much for your support on Patreon. It really does go a long way. And uh, if you want to hang out with the crew a little bit more, you can hop in the Discord, or you can contact us through a micellular uh, mushroom contact <laughs> network between fruiting bodies. Uh, if you need stickers, just message us on Patreon, and I'll walk over to the post office for you. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or carve it into the bark of a sycamore tree.
2: LAUGHTER <laughs> Damn, now all of our listeners just rushing out to Google, how do you identify different trees? (laughs) <laughs> hey, that's
0: a good thing to know.
1: <laughs> Sycamore's pretty easy. I threw you a softball. Sycamores are pretty easy to recognize. I, I wasn't like, oh, you know, uh go go um carve our name into like some obscure Bilbao tree or some shit.
0: <laughs> Identify the ash trees in your neighborhood <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: All right. Now that we've moved on from the uh the cold open far into the, the arboreal
2: open. minute that we're starting with. <laughs> there we go. Arboreal Here. minute. <laughs> Uh, we just got a quick follow up real quick. Just wanted to do a a shout out to the incredible work being done by the folks at the Najwan support network. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how they and other members of the community have really come together in uh, Mississauga, Ontario to support the former workers of the Live Freely Bakery, which recently shut down, uh, leaving a whole bunch of workers with a ton of back wages that had not been paid by the bosses, and since Canada's court system was prioritizing you know, the results of the bankruptcy going to their bank creditors and not to the actual workers who were doing the work in the first place, the community really stepped up to fight back, and over the past couple of weeks, they have managed to use popular pressure to force the former owners of the bakery to repay $185,000 in unpaid back wages, which amounts to, I believe, all of the money that the workers were owed. And this was done entirely through popular power because the courts were not going to help these workers and so the workers themselves organized and the community came together around them and they were able to win this and i i think this is like a really awesome demonstration of what popular power can accomplish
0: yeah it's really mm-hmm.
1: impressive well and it it, it, it raises an interesting topic of conversation which is that like a lot of people will say like oh you know you should always go through the proper channels you should always try to sort this out within the courts or whatever but it's like we wouldn't even have those proper channels if it weren't for groups like this forcing the popular will onto companies forcing it onto the state to get them to take action because it's like this doesn't just get unpaid wages back to these workers this also sets a precedent that if you try to pull this shit there are groups in the in canada that will come around and and say hey no that's totally fucking unacceptable you must pay your workers
0: well and hopefully it inspires other people to do similar things when they're facing any sort of repression by you know the capitalist class which absolutely i I think leads well enough into our next follow-up which is about Moog synthesizers, because last year we were really mm-hmm. excited to cover the launch of the union drive by the workers at Moog Music in Asheville, North Carolina. The workers who assembled the comp- who assembled the company's famous synthesizers announced their fight uh, to secure better wages and working conditions, despite the difficulties of organizing in a state with such openly anti-labor government. Unfortunately, this week we got some bad news following Moog's acquisition by InMusic Brands last year. The new corporate owners will be shutting down most of their production in Asheville and moving the plant overseas. The layoffs hit most of the production staff and half of the factory's 60 employees. As reported by Asheville Citizen's Times, InMusic bought Moog last year for uh, from the company founders, actually, and in a in the process forcibly buy- buying out the shares of the company theoretically controlled by the workers through their esop or employee owned stock program uh or employee right or employee, employee stock, stock ownership. ownership yeah employee right. stock ownership program i mean yeah
2: and i just wanted to point that like cuz we talked about this at the time about how Moog was 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 bandied around as employee owned and how we've mm-hmm. seen it's weird that this seems to happen a lot specifically in the musical instruments industry because i the very first story we ever talked about an aesop was a guitar company right yeah
0: martin Mm -hmm. i think editor note uh it was taylor guitars
2: yeah well aesops
1: tend to be
0: manufacturing
1: in general like at my job Anywhere I go that has an ESOP, because they'll always have like ESOP news up on the bulletin board, they are always a production facility. So I think if you are a production facility that makes a boutique item like synthesizers or guitars or something, there's probably a pretty good chance that somebody on your corporate team is going to be like, hey, this ESOP thing works pretty good for our narrative, you know?
0: Uh huh. Yeah, because it makes it seem like you're being supportive of the workers because there's quote-unquote quote worker ownership, but yet somehow these workers must have voted to not only union bust themselves, but ship their jobs across seas. <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: yeah, and that's the whole problem with the ESOP, is it's like, oh, the workers controlled 49% of the shares. It's like, well, first off, that means they're a minority owner, and mm-hmm. so they don't actually have controlling interest. But the, ultimately, the the core issue here is that something being worker owned is not the same as something being worker controlled. And that's a lot of what the sleight of hand that's being done with that terminology is. And I think it's just ultimately really important to reinforce that like having a fancy stock plan, that's basically a 401k with benefits, like is Mm -hmm. not the same thing as being a co-op because again, if, if, if Moog had been a co-op, controlled by the workers, I find it very unlikely they would have voted to shut down production and sell the the plant and move production to Asia.
1: Yeah, well, it's a real Stafford Beer moment we're having right here, right? Because like, if you're an owner, then you you are a part owner of the business. If you're an operator, then you partly operate the business. What elements are missing there? Decision and control, Him, super importantly, which is also the name of his like, fifth book or whatever. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. Check out our cybernetics series, folks. But, uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, former workers spoke with reporters explaining that on September 22nd, InMusic announced layoffs for most of the staff at the Asheville plant, Moog has long touted its domestic production to advertise its brands. Basically, they're saying, like, look, we make stuff in the U.S. But as with any capitalist enterprise, they ultimately only cared about profit, as is clear from this Mm -hmm. decision. Yeah. While the fight to unionize Moog was always going to be an uphill battle, the decision by the owners to cash out and destroy the company rather than agree to the the terms uh, is pretty fucking awful and disgusting. And also a valuable reminder that no matter who your boss is, you share no interests with them, and uh, they will throw you away without thinking twice.
1: Yeah. Uh, and there, I do have a little bit of extra on this story as well, because I happen to have a friend who works in the synthesizer industry and has oh, for wow. a while, not at Moog, but at a comparable company. And when I reached out to them, uh, they told me the and this isn't super explicitly labor-related, necessarily. This is just some backstory, but um, apparently, over the past decade, Moog has been trying to convert themselves from a manufacturer to, like, a lifestyle brand, something that you see a lot with, like, Silicon Valley brain going on, and they were expanding very unwisely in directions that made the operation unsustainable, and then uh, Mike Adams, who was in charge of Moog, had planned to sell for a while before they were unionized anyway, but then, post the unionization, his his um, goals became less about preserving the Moog legacy and more about just cashing out for as much fucking money as he could. Mm. Um, It seems like he really turned around and was like, oh, you're unionizing? Well, then fuck you. And so, you know, this doesn't say anything bad about unionizing. This just really says bad things about Mike Adams and his brand of running a fucking company.
2: Yeah, no kidding. That fucking sucks. I mean, it's typical for bosses, but it's, it's, again, this is another one of those things like, why we always have to underline, you know, every boss sells themselves as I'm not that kind of boss. Every single one of them says that. And then every Mm -hmm. single time when they are presented with an opportunity to do something like this and cash out and make a shitload of money, they're like, oh, actually, no, I am exactly like all those other bosses. Yep, The mask (laughs) comes off right away. Yeah, every single time. Yeah. So on to our next story. Um, We've got... Some actual interesting news out of the government for once, uh, although you Ooh. know, uh, extremely late uh, to this issue, as they usually are. That's right.
1: Commander has bit the 11th Secret Service agent.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. That math rock album just gets, keeps getting longer and longer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so this Wednesday, uh, September 26th, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, finally admitted the fact that every single person in this country has known for a very long time, which is that Amazon is a monopoly. Shocking news, folks. Uh, This is really breaking. It's uh, really incredible to be telling
0: this to people.
1: (laughs) What about about eBay? What about Alibaba? Wait. Those those sites that we all use all the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I had never heard of those other two. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the FTC,
2: along with attorneys... Actually, I get to use this phrase for every every uh, pedantic writer's favorite phrase. So the FTC, along with 17 attorneys general uh, from different oh, states wow. around the country, launched a lawsuit attacking the company for its anti-competitive practices. Again, all of which is uh, obvious to everyone who's in america (laughs) like uh if you buy shit you buy it from amazon that's why there's a fucking amazon warehouse every five minutes (laughs) um in in a press release from the agency the ftc said quote amazon's actions allow it to stop rivals and sellers from lowering prices degrade quality for shoppers overcharge sellers stifle innovation and prevent rivals from fairly competing against amazon end quote
0: Oh, but Dan, I I saw the the cheaper products. I mean, sure, it was on page 10, uh, but, you know, they definitely existed. How is that uncompetitive?
1: Well, it's the same thing with like um the banking system, right? It's like you can't let consumer banks also be investment banks. It's like if you if you are the sales platform, you can't also be the main merchant on the sales platform right' an <laughs> like, <like>, obvious conflict <laughs> of interest like
2: <laughs> right, exactly. and so the FTC complaint uh, that they actually filed goes lays out detailed allegations against the company's mo- monopolistic practices. Uh, But although it's focusing largely on how the company deals with third-party sellers on the marketplace, which is something I really want to highlight here. Because, like, look, of course, Amazon's a monopoly, and I'm happy for the government to point out that they're a monopoly and go after them. But I do think it's interesting specifically what they're concerned about here, which, to me, everything I've read, you know, from the FTC on this in their little summary press release they put out and and, and some of the quotes from their – Their actual complaint itself, they really seem to be focused on the damage done to, like, the small business owner Mm -hmm. who's selling on the platform. Not so much the customer and, you know, the millions and millions of us who have to use Amazon as a platform, Yeah, the
1: impression I get from the FTC is that they're running around in circles screaming like, this isn't a free market, this isn't a free market, when what they're looking at is literally just the results of a so-called free market. (laughs) So I really don't see what the complaint is here. Well,
0: and also, I think that what you're pointing to is that very often you know, people will cite, oh, this is bad for the consumers or this or that. Uh, And, you know, they actually really are now focused on these, quote, small business owners or whatever. And no matter what, the workers always come last. Yeah, there's nothing in here about, you know, the fact that
2: Amazon also understaffs all of its facilities, that it fires a shitload of people for no reason, that people have to pee in bottles because they're constantly being harassed by their supervisors, that the injury rate at their warehouses is double the rate of the entire rest of the industry, all this stuff. No, what they're complaining about is this, quote, anti-discounting measures that punish sellers and deter other online retailers from offering prices lower than Amazon, keeping prices higher for products across the internet. For example, if Amazon discovers that a seller is offering lower-priced goods elsewhere, Amazon can bury discounting sellers so far down in Amazon's search results that they become effectively invisible, end quote. And then this, in what addition, What a weird quote, pedantic complaint. Conditioning sellers' ability to obtain prime eligibility for their products virtual necessity for doing business on Amazon, on sellers using Amazon's costly fulfillment service, which has made it substantially more expensive for sellers on Amazon to also offer their products on other platforms. This unlawful coercion has in turn limited competitors' ability to effectively compete against Amazon, end quote.
1: Oh, won't someone think of the mom and pop back to school supplies distributors? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, like the first, the first one where it's like this makes it harder for people to lower prices on things. That is actually does affect people, and that is bad. But again, their whole concern here seems not so much to be that like oh prices are higher and therefore the consumer is hit by it. It's like and therefore these other small businesses aren't able to make mm-hmm. possible sales.
1: Like, well, and I'm I'm and even that's bad by they're the job first... creators. Yeah, well, and I'm even perplexed by the first complaint, because to my mind, the more egregious version of this that would be more worth focusing on is that Amazon doesn't just bury better, lower-priced products. They make their own version of them, drop the price to well below what anybody else is selling it at, sell it at a loss until it becomes by far the most popular version of the item, and then crank the price up to double what it's worth.
2: And makes the product continually worse.
1: Yeah oh, and it, and it it mainly affects consumers so i it doesn't really affect the other small business owners that much, I guess. I mean, you're stealing yeah. their products, but that's the same thing that those other small business owners are doing in the first place, so it's not like it's not up for interrogation. Well,
0: and I know that the, that the degrading of quality happens because one time I bought sweatpants and I'm like, "Hey, these are pretty nice sweatpants." And then I bought them again 6 months later and they had notable lower quality features in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sweatpants yeah. have features, folks. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean I know what you mean, and, and, and
2: I, I mean I think anybody who uses Amazon, which is most people in this country, because of their monopoly market share, mm-hmm. as far as being an online marketplace, is is that like everybody experiences this. You see that you know all the various like Amazon Basics products get all thrown up in the top of the search results, even if they're slightly more expensive and also slightly shittier than the other versions of the products you might be able to buy somewhere else but and the the thing that the FTC seems to be very focused on is that the way that this impacts third party suppliers on Amazon, where according to the FTC complaint, some of those suppliers end up ne- paying nearly half of their revenue just in listing fees to Amazon, which does suck for them, uh, mm-hmm. but I think the bigger problem here is that like you can just look at the fact that there's one online marketplace that everybody fucking uses, of course, all this stuff happens like that that 's the thing that I think like bothers me so much about this because the way the, the remedy that the FTC is seeking is they're looking for a permanent injunction to bar Amazon from continuing these anti-competitive practices with the stated goal to quote, restore competition end quote, but like none of that involves breaking up Amazon into multiple, mm-hmm. smaller, distinct subcomponents that would put theoretically compete against each other. You're still going to have the one gigantic marketplace that everybody's using. And so this is like not, this is the same thing as when they're like, we're going to go after Microsoft for being a, a monopoly, and we're going to hit them with these record-breaking Sherman Antitrust Act things. But Microsoft is still a monopoly. <laughs> they still yeah. exist in the exact same way that they did before that.
1: Oh, like this was an issue back in the fucking '80s with uh, telecommunications giant AT and T, who mm-hmm. basically, like, I think after a couple of mergers, ended up acquiring something like eighty percent of the telephone infrastructure in the United States, yeah. and then the government issued orders to break them up, and they just reconfigured into a bunch of other companies that eventually reconverged, and now we have the same thing except there's just like five names at the top instead of one, and you see the same yeah, thing. Yeah, where like, Verizon came from yeah and, and 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 European investment firms do the same thing, like Tyson Krupp, the elevator manufacturers. those are actually just two giant investment firms that occasionally happen to spit out an elevator,
2: <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like, I just don't really see an injunction against like high seller fees on here nah. doing anything to address all of the problems resulting from Amazon's monopoly. Position, Because ultimately the root cause here is something that the government literally cannot address because it it would mean going after the fundamental basis on which our whole economic system is set up. Because the problem is that you have a single marketplace that dominates the way people do commerce on the internet and it's owned by a private group. That's the problem. Like if you solve that problem, if you turn if you were to say nationalize Amazon and turn it mm-hmm. into a a like state-owned marketplace that could be regulated democratically, then you wouldn't have this as a problem, but they can't do that because that would go against the interests of everybody running said government. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean that then they would have a whole different problem which is all of my t- huge amounts of money that I used to get are now no longer arriving.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> and every all these workers are able to get things for cheaper and all the people that work for Amazon are also having a, you know, way better working conditions. This isn't making me billions of dollars. This is terrible. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of funny phrasing it
1: this way, though, because it does remind you that, like, even the most modest reform that actually is material, that actually is meaningful, is just like sawing away at the string from which the mm-hmm. sword of Damocles hangs over the head of the bourgeoisie.
2: <laughs> That's right. I, I I really like that uh, that phrasing. <laughs> but uh, speaking of some shitty members of the bourgeoisie. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we got to talk about California and their incredibly, in California, where everything is incredibly progressive at all times and we can't handle how socialist they are, right?
2: That's right. General Secretary (laughs) Gavin Newsom has made a brave decision to side with a bunch of uh, tech companies. Uh Oh,
0: (laughs) so not what I just said.
2: No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, what's interesting about this story is that, well, I guess we should just get into it. So I I was going to jump to the middle of it because there's parts that I think are particularly egregious. But we've talked a few different times about the craze amongst the ruling class for using quote unquote artificial intelligence, which is definitely artificial, but intelligence is a stretch. And uh, (laughs) it's typically been in the context of talking about how most of these programs are actually just run off of the labor of some of the most... heavily exploited workers in the world. But today, we have a new spin on it, where the governor of California, defying even the rest of the California Democratic Party, who were set up to collect a rare W, uh, because of how excited he is for AI-driven vehicles to run people down in the streets. So, Workers in California, led by the Teamsters, have been fighting for months to win a new bill requiring any autonomous vehicle above 10,000 pounds to have a human on board as a safety monitor. The bill that they supported, AB 316, passed the California state legislature by wide margins in both houses. Even a lot of corporate Democrats were able to understand the dangers of letting unsafe, untested, and largely unregulated algorithms pilot heavy machinery on public roads. And this is one of those situations where it's like, yes, obviously the Teamsters were involved because this is clearly a labor issue, but this is also a safety issue that affects Mm -hmm. every single person in that area, working or not, elderly or if you leave the house you are possibly in danger of getting hit by an autonomous vehicle.
0: Well, and with, I mean, dangerous chemicals sometimes being transported by vehicles, you might not even have to leave your house to be affected.
1: Yeah, well, and the other thing is they'll say like, oh, we would never use these to transport hazardous gases or dangerous materials. And then, you know, like one week in, they're going to be like, I don't know how this happened, but we were definitely hauling enriched whatever
2: like on well, the Well, no, no, of the no. The, the, the next thing they do is two weeks later, they're like, how can we possibly make You know, human drivers have to haul this dangerous stuff around. That's just putting them at risk. Look at the incredible safety innovation we have. We can just have a robot (laughs) do it. It'll definitely work. Nothing bad
1: will happen. Instead of endangering a driver who is paid and trained to know what they're doing, let's just endanger a community that happens to be there.
2: Um, (laughs) Including probably wherever that driver lives because you know they're not going to transport. Because that's the thing. If this actually goes through and they actually start doing this, you know they're going to set up restrictions so that it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, you're allowed to be on public roads but not in these gated communities. Of course. Well, and also,
1: there's just the natural consequence of the fact that, like, extremely wealthy and powerful people don't live in major shipping lanes. They live right. in enclosed in little communities in, like, valleys and, like, little areas in the mountains and shit. But anyway, so Gavin Newsom, uh, cutting against the grain of his own state Democratic Party, vetoed the bill on Friday, September the 22nd. He claims that he vetoed it because current regulation is enough, and this restriction, quote-unquote is not needed
0: that's why (laughs) Uh, that's why it passed with with all of the people supporting it that it was just totally unnecessary and a huge amount of
1: public and popular support both in and outside of his jurisdiction Um, and of course the thing that
2: we know that democratic politicians stand for more than anything else is you know economy of 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 legal paper that that's you know one of their number one priorities (laughs) is making sure we don't have unnecessary laws
1: (laughs) absolutely um but meanwhile, nearly three dozen people have already been killed by runaway Teslas just on autopilot alone. Not even considering the damage that a full-sized semi truck could do if it, uh, for some reason, determined that a preschool was actually a highway on-ramp for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, Democrats could override his veto, but they typically refuse to do so and have not overridden a veto in over forty years. Per yeah, reporting I was by Reuters. To see that. <laughs> That's a long time. I mean, you either have an incredible lockstep party, and this is the first break that we've seen in most of a lifetime, or... um
0: it's going to be business as usual, and nothing, and uh, the yeah. veto just holds.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, or this was the this was the play all along because it seems to me like Gavin Newsom is more than happy to be the bad guy here, right? And probably told plenty of these Democrats up front, like, yeah, you can vote for this. I don't give a shit. I'll veto it no matter what, and I know <laughs> you won't do anything about it. Um, So, currently, autonomous vehicles over 10,000 pounds are banned from California roads by existing regulations. However, California's regulatory agencies are in the process of drafting regulations to allow such giant vehicles to be driven by untested computer programs without any human interference. These planned regulations are, of course, heavily influenced by the California-based tech companies developing such vehicles, who have donated heavily to Newsom and other politicians to promote their interests." Prior to Newsom's veto, Teamster members and community supporters in the hundreds held a march to call on the governor to sign the bill. At the rally, Teamster's president, Sean O'Brien, said, quote, If Governor Newsom chooses to not do the right thing, he is sending a message to California and every state in this country that technology should overrule middle class jobs, end quote. And uh, as usual, nailed it, Sean. You, 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 are, you, you almost always getting this stuff right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that... Uh, that is a pretty accurate way of seeing how most of our politicians uh, mm-hmm. view how things should go. I mean, what regulations have they put on all the horrible things most of these tech companies mm-hmm. have done? Nothing. And, for, well, and, and, and one of the things that I will complain about here is that, well, of course, we understand that all of our politicians are bought and paid for. Let, these sorts of things always frustrate me because of how cheaply <laughs> our politicians are usually bought off. Like you could get like a, like $20,000 in campaign donations and they'll just say, mm-hmm. yeah, it's fine for this truck to careen through a poor person's house. That's okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you can help me win orange County, we're all good. Um, or whatever. I only know the counties in California that have to do with weed. So orange Humboldt, that's it. That's all the counties <laughs> I know. Um, uh, <laughs> But anyway, um, Peter Finn, who is the secretary treasurer of Teamsters Local 856 in San Francisco, hub of the tech industry pushing the robo-trucks, said, quote, As our experience in San Francisco has shown, these vehicles are not ready for prime time. The threat to our safety is only going to increase when they put this unproven technology in trucks over 10,000 pounds. Why are corporations rushing to put this risky tech on our street before it's safe? One simple reason— End quote. And I think that's such a a great quote, because it makes me think of the way that they've gradually taken rail teams on the American rail system Mm -hmm. down to just one person. And it's it's very deranged that the trucking industry wants to go even further and be like, hey, what about no people? And it's hard for me to imagine that if they are allowed to do this, that the rail industry won't be far behind. You know, oh, yeah. that they're not just going to say, oh, why shouldn't we just transport trucks through small towns in Ohio? Or rather, why shouldn't we just transport trains through small towns in Ohio with tons of hazardous materials with no operators, with nobody on the train?
0: Yeah, I think that that parallel is really well pointed out here, especially because, for one, trains are on tracks and it's still incredibly unsafe to have right. them be unmanned. And yet these mm-hmm. trucks can go just go between lanes. They can, you know, end up in all of these different places much more as far as I mean, I don't know much about this, but just from my kind of layman's perspective. It seems a like a, it seems like there's a lot more factors on the road than on the rails, and it's already unsafe to do this on the rails.
2: Well, there are, and you know, like as as somebody who went through you know technology school and stuff, like that. When I was going to college, like this was really the early it was the early days of autonomous vehicle, like. Testing and stuff, all and this all is coming out of uh, DARPA testing, which I don't think a lot of people know, because uh, the whole idea was you could do like autonomous uh, l- convoys to like resupply mm-hmm. like bases in Iraq or Afghanistan, then you wouldn't have to risk human soldiers being blown up. That's where a lot of this, the idea for, and funding critically to develop a lot of this tech came from. And the and the boosterism around it in the early and mid, like, 2000s was huge. And I started to buy into a lot of that and be like, this is going to be great. It's going to eliminate things like, you know, drunk driving and stuff like that. The problem is, as this stuff's been rolled out, it's been determined, oh, actually... Uh there are way too many fucking variables. Like mm-hmm. when you are just driving around on an open street and it we the tech isn't there. Like there's questions well, and, of will the tech ever be there, but it's certainly fucking not there now.
1: Well and fucking like w- Drunk driving is such a perfect comparison for this, because drunk driving is something that every person in America is more than happy to be like, yeah, that's obviously bad. That's a problem we need. You know, they might think we need more tickets, which is a bad idea, or just like more systemic solutions to prevent it from happening in the first place, which is a good idea. But we all recognize drunk driving is a huge problem. And yet robot driving is statistically way less safe than drunk driving, an already very dangerous thing. And every powerful person in the country is like, we gotta make this happen. This needs to be <laughs> yeah.
2: yesterday. And and the thing with I think that the the thing ultimately is it's just you know as we saw plenty of the mem- the a solid majority uh of the Dem- california democratic party voted uh you know in favor of this bill now of course as you mentioned there could have been some you know behind the scenes discussions there as far as how that's presented but i think you know even th- there's a lot of members of the ruling class that understand this is dangerous but also th- the thing is this represents the Holy Grail, really, for so mem- many members of the capitalist class, the idea I can have a business and not have to pay wages to any of these fucking human workers I have to deal with, who keep asking for things like healthcare and safety and to not die and all of these other ridiculous
0: demands. Question: What happens when your when your uh, composition of fixed li- uh, labor costs, uh, you know, kind of outdoes the variable labor and uh, sustainability Itself that way. Well,
2: I mean, yes. In, in the long term, uh, the, the thing that they don't recognize is that removing human beings from your uh, production line means eliminating the source of all of your profits. However, mm-hmm. you can get around that by simply taking over the state and getting the state to give you a monopoly license so everyone has to use your product and no one can compete against you. Uh, you do that a lot in um, fascism.
1: Oh, Mm -hmm. right, right. That's what
0: happens. Oh, right.
1: And then if that's left unchecked, this really neat thing happens where you just impoverish all of your working classes and the unemployed and and anybody that you don't see as like morally upright. And then pretty soon your country is just a handful of thousands of ruling class people and no workers to buy their products or use any of their services. Mm -hmm. And then they eat each other like cannibals, which is pretty cool. (laughs) I mean, you got to go through a lot of bullshit to get there. And I'm not saying it's worth it, but it is a nice little kind of consolation prize that in the end it's all just a big cosmic joke and they die anyway
2: (laughs) but yeah i mean i did appreciate uh sean o'brien's response to gavin newsom vetoing the bill where he said on twitter Mm -hmm. quote gavin newsom doesn't have the guts to face working people he'd rather give our jobs away in the dead of night any politician who turns their back on workers to curry campaign contributions from corporate america and big tech better square up teamsters will not walk away from this fight end quote that's right.
0: It's time to fight. <laughs> Hell yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, it, every time uh, Newsom is in the news, I'm reminded of how accurate, and there's a lot of problems with this show, but Silicon Valley has this character called Gavin Belson, who is like if you just smashed Gavin Newsom and Jeff Bezos together in a particle accelerator. And it is one of the most pitch perfect character assassinations of that kind of guy. Wait,
0: <laughs> so. It, can we. Uh, You know, smash Gavin Newsom and Jeff Bezos together in a particle accelerator.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Boy, Maybe make it a do, stretch
0: goal for
1: the
2: Patreon. I that don't that know. would do wonders for things in California. But you know what else would do wonders for people of California? That's right. If Kaiser Permanente would stop being such a god-awful fucking company. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we've covered a lot of strikes and organizing drives by healthcare workers over the last couple of years on this show. But I, th- I think at this point, no single healthcare company has emerged as such a repeat offender as uh, California-based Kaiser Permanente. I don't actually know if their headquarters is in California, but I know like a uh, huge percentage of their workers are, which might as well and also, be the same like, thing. I-
1: We've we've covered them enough times without me asking this question, so I'm going to ask it now. Does Kaiser Permanente just mean the Kaiser forever or some shit? Where does that name come from? <laughs> hmm.
2: I think they're huh. named that because they they were formed out of mergers between other companies. Um, okay, still, it's a sus name. <laughs> well, it is the sort of thing you. It's a weird name for an American company. You would expect yes. the, like a European company to be named something like that, but. Uh, you know they are the supposed gigantic non- non-profit healthcare company uh which to the they are the example i always bring up when i'm just like non-profit doesn't mean anything <laughs> like it's a fake term in in the united states and we've seen over and over again uh, workers at kaiser permanente have to fight back against crippling understaffing across all levels of care for years we've covered disputes Uh, against the company by nurses, therapists, seemingly every single type of worker that Kaiser employs. And now once again, the company has pushed its workforce to the point of having to threaten a strike to get them to come back to the table and negotiate a fair deal. This happens a lot. Yeah. Uh, Like, this is the thing. It's like, uh, I harp on this a lot because it's like, you know, healthcare companies in the United States are very regional, and I live in the Northeast, and so like, I should have no reason to know who Kaiser Permanente is. And the reason that I do is because they keep popping up uh, for abusing the shit out of their workers. And so on Friday, September 22nd, 75,000 members of the Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions between the SEIU and United Healthcare Workers, uh, I think there might also be a couple smaller unions in there as well. Uh, Those are the two main ones. But this is for, uh, you know, the different unions representing workers at Kaiser. On on the 22nd, they issued a 10-day strike notice to the company, which is required for healthcare workers before they go on strike. 90% of the members voted to authorize a potential strike. If Kaiser doesn't start negotiating seriously and presenting proposals to deal with the major issues facing the workers, there will be, to start, a three-day strike starting on October 4th, this coming week which could be the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history. And this is all coming about because these workers' contracts expire on September 30th, which is today, the day that we are recording this.
0: Yeah. Uh, largest healthcare strike in U.S. history. Uh, let's fucking go. I know, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so the workers involved in these disputes have a variety of roles, because I think one of the things I want to distinguish this from is this is bigger than, like, Because a lot of when we talk about healthcare strikes, we talk about nursing strikes. That's Mm -hmm. a, a large percentage of it. This strike is actually the workers involved here are primarily all of the other workers that you think of at any pretty much healthcare facility. These are folks from surgery, radiology, and pharmacy techs, to housekeepers and food service staff, to respiratory therapists and CNAs, and even some nurses and optometrists in certain parts of the country. These 75,000 workers are about 40% of Kaiser's total workforce, and they work at nearly 800 different clinics and hospitals across nine different states, serving over 12 million patients. And I I got all that from uh, Stat News. Appreciate they had a really good roundup about this. And when they reached out to both sides for comment, Kaiser basically seemed to confirm what the unions have been saying for years, that they refuse to negotiate over staffing levels. Because uh, the Kaiser spokesperson who, who responded to Stat News said quote our priority is to reach an agreement that ensures we can continue to provide market competitive pay and outstanding benefits end quote
0: that's always such a (laughs) bullshit line market competitive motherfucker you're huge (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, and it's,
0: it's,
1: it's so telling that they feel comfortable saying market competitive about the pay, which is a figure that everybody can easily understand. But they're happy to call their benefits outstanding because benefits packages are typically extremely opaque and hard right. to understand even when they're your own package.
2: And of course, no mention whatsoever about hiring more workers because mm-hmm. that's been the core demand of the, of the workers at Kaiser Permanente in this struggle to force Kaiser to actually hire enough workers so that they can provide the care that Kaiser's millions of patients deserve. In addition, of course, due to the soaring costs of living, workers are fighting for improved pay and performance bonuses to reflect the vital work they perform and the massive revenues that Kaiser generates despite its supposed nonprofit status. And Kaiser's focus, as you said, on wages is unsurprising, but uh, in addition to the fact that it's because it's something they can tout as simple, it, part of it is that is a little bit of bait and switch, because they've actually been forced by a recent California state law to begin phasing their wages up to at least $25 an hour over the next few years. So they were going to have to raise wages anyway, and so now they can just sort of be like, oh, we did this on our own accord. <laughs> we were not forced by a law to do this. We're doing this because we like you, please stop asking us to hire enough people.
0: Yeah, the fucking marketing department nailed that one, didn't they?
2: Yeah, and so in previous years' contract negotiations, Kaiser claimed that they would agree uh, that, you know, oh, we, we are running into an understaffing problem, but the problem is there just aren't enough people with the training needed to be able to hire workers and now usually when companies say that uh what they mean is there aren't enough people willing to accept incredibly low wages to do this work and so we just can't hire anyone which is where a lot of the you know learn to code pressure came from it was not so Mm -hmm. much that people wanted there to be more people who were coders but the companies wanted to stop having to pay quite so much for the people they were able to hire and so in the same vein here in a previous contract negotiation, they agreed to set up a joint training program that would be funded by them and the union uh, to train more healthcare workers to help deal with this problem. The issue there is that Kaiser often refuses to hire the people coming out of their own training program.
0: So, yeah, they're like handed these workers who are highly trained on a silver platter, and they're just like, no, I prefer understaffing.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, they hand themselves those workers. They yes. literally trained them up specifically to do a job, and then they're like, uh, we'll contact you.
2: Yeah, well, because they're like, well, we went to the spreadsheet, mm-hmm. and the spreadsheet said our profit would go down. And the only thing that would go up is patient satisfaction, and that doesn't make us any money, so we don't give mm-hmm. a shit about that. So we're not going to hire them. So... And workers who were interviewed by Stat News said that due to insufficient staffing, they've had to constantly delay and reschedule patients' appointments, even for patients with critical illnesses like cancer. And I want to underline that, like, because, you know, like, delaying an appointment for a couple of weeks, if you just are going in for your annual checkup, who cares? It's like, it's annoying, but it's not really that big of a deal. But they're having to do this with like oncology patients. Like these are folks who are critically ill and like need treatment. And because Kaiser refuses to hire enough people, you have like folks being impacted because it's just like, well, Sorry, we don't have the capacity to handle patients right now. Come back in two weeks could cancer be the case. waits that long.
0: This couldn't be the case because the only system that causes uh, you know, the the rationing of care is a, is socialized medicine, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: The free market. Well, I mean, there would argue that the free market is doing its job because, you know, if those people who don't want to get their appointments delayed were just willing to mortgage their house and go to one of the more expensive clinics, well, they could certainly get
0: care. What house? Oh, my God.
1: What, <laughs> which which uh, Republican was it that just said a couple days ago, like, I think patients should be able to negotiate with doctors in the hospital <laughs> for the prices of things and then everybody was on Twitter like posting like me I can only afford 15 grand and the doctors like oh don't want to mortgage your house to keep living
2: <laughs> Yeah I mean the whole thing is it's 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 absurd and it literally costs lives it's it's awful I mean Savanda uh, Blaylock who is a pharmacy tech who works for Kaiser told Stat News quote I've been in healthcare for 30 years, and this is the first time ever that I just feel like I'm at a loss. Like, I'm not doing what I came to Kaiser to do and to deliver that care. We don't have the tools. We need more people. We need more staff, end quote.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's real declining empire shit, because uh, it's not just the the them trying to get more returns year after year. It's also just that like they don't want to invest in any of their infrastructure anymore, whether yeah. it's labor, whether it's tools, whether it's the buildings, whether it's you know any of that. That's that's why you see the whole struggle against removing. Um, attendance uh at the RMT over in the UK and the RMT or rather the 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 rail just trying to replace them with machines that break all the time pretty soon yeah. kaiser permanente will be doing that to your pharmacy tech and you'll be getting your prescription from a robot that just says uh please fix me i am broken
0: or yeah, <laughs> yeah. i just imagine getting getting your medicine from like one of those old cigarette machines Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I mean, well, this is like you'd have like these McKinsey consultants would show up in Rome and be and be talking to like the, the the emperor and be like, "Yeah, I see you got this bread and circuses program, but these circuses are really expensive, and we're not showing here on these returns that they're making you any money. So why don't you just cut those? I'm sure nothing bad would happen." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyways, you know, it, this is like this whole crisis is again entirely self inflicted. There is Kaiser could absolutely hire enough people and still operate as a very lucrative nonprofit. Gigantic quotes. They just refuse to do that, and so instead you have situations like where you have uh, this Rashad Pritchett, who's a housekeeper at Kaiser's Richmond and Penal facility, who told NBC Bay Area, "quote We personally feel like the forgotten heroes. Everybody, and rightfully so, respects their nurse. Everybody respects their doctor's opinion." But we are the people behind the scenes making all these things happen fluidly, end quote. And and meanwhile, the company continues to refuse to negotiate in good faith. Workers interviewed by Stat News said that Kaiser negotiators routinely either refused to show up for bargaining sessions at all, or when they did show up, showed up for less than a half an hour and didn't take things seriously. Which is a classic union-busting tactic, but it's, I will say, it's one thing to, you know, see this happen by Starbucks, it's another thing when, you know, you're supposed to be a company that's like keeping people alive and you just are mm. treating these negotiations like, like, like they don't mean anything. Like it's, it's very fucked up. And I mean, you know, they always have to put the preface, you know, it's never a picnic for workers to go on strike, but frankly, I think Kaiser Permanente just needs to be struck at this point. Like they ha- like I mean, they need to be nationalized of course, but yeah. like is an intermediate step. Like, <laughs> there's there's no other way that they're going to agree to staffing minimums at this point, point. and so I think next week we very likely will see the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history. Well, yeah, and
1: there's there's the certain thing where it's like you know you you don't want to strike not just because it's inconvenient for you, but because you know it's going to cause damage to your patients and your communities and everything. And these workers are obviously cognizant of that. But with where Kaiser is at right now, it's hard to imagine the patients receiving less or worse care. Then they're getting, even with everything running, the way the bosses like it.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well... And to our next story, when we're talking about big strikes that are pending, I mean we got to talk about how the surge of worker power has been so infectious you know looking at like the victory of the WGA and their strike and the historic contract by the Teamsters uh, and the inspiring stand-up strike of the UAW workers nationwide well workers uh, in a little town you might know uh, called Las Vegas, are going to be standing up. The Culinary Union, which represents hospitality workers, housekeepers, bartenders, cooks, servers, porters, etc., all over the city, voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike this week, or, well, a potential strike, after their contract expired. Uh, At a massive rally on Tuesday, September 26th at the University of Las Vegas, the union's 60,000 workers voted 95% in favor to give their bargaining team the authority to call a strike. Which I mean, that is a huge number of people. Uh, contracts for th- for, uh, for forty thousand of these workers at some La- are at some of Las Vegas's biggest casinos, like the MGM, Caesar's Palace, or the Wynn, recently expired. A strike at the major casinos by the Culinary Union would be the first in over thirty years, just showing like more of the historic precedent that. Those previous uh, mentioned strikes have done to show people it's time to strike. Yeah. The union says that they will continue negotiating with the major casinos as they fight for better wages and working conditions, but now with the added leverage of a possibility of a strike. Am I
1: supposed to just stop being impressed by 90 plus percent strike authorization Both, Is that I was... just where we're at as a country now? Because it, it's badass, but I mean, like, I feel like each time I'm like, wow, that's a high number. And then one day later, I'm like, wow, that's a high number.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's just a trend of 90% for months now.
2: Well I, one of the things that I loved, you know, was just seeing some of the images coming out of the big rally that the culinary workers had, which I love about the fact it's like, cause you're in Las Vegas. It's like the, the conference capital of the world. So there's like, unlike a lot of other cities, you know, where it might be difficult for a union to get like a hall big enough to put, you know, 40, 50,000 people in there's a million of those all over Las Vegas. So they're just like, all right, let's have the strike vote in person. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, it's a really powerful image of, you know, all those workers standing together and just being like, yeah, fuck it. We will strike that. Well, I and mean, it's also
1: it's the workers playing the composition of their union and their their the area of their workplace to their advantage, too, because Las Vegas is an unusually condensed city in terms mm-hmm. of the areas where most of the workers are working. They are very physically close to each other in the first place in a way you don't see in like Los Angeles, for example.
0: Yeah, I I think that that is really impressive. Uh, Deanna Virgil, a thirty eight year thirty eight year veteran hospitality worker who currently works at the Wind, told the AP quote There is no telling where I would be if I didn't have the support of my daughter. There are a lot of us who have two jobs, but one job should be enough." End quote. And this is a sentiment that I think that we hear all too often, where people are like, I'm working two and three jobs. One job should be enough.
1: Well, and I, it's it's wild, too, because, like, you know, you mentioned this would be the first strike in over 30 years. And I was like, well, then, you know, this is going to be a lot of people who it's their first time. And then you're like, boom, here's a quote from somebody who's been in the industry for almost 40 years.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I that's one. Of, and I was really glad that, you know, the AP actually interviewed her because like, you know, obviously for us, like we would say that, you know, somebody who's 18, nobody who is working should be, have to work two jobs. But this is somebody who's been doing this for almost 40 years and is still being paid so little that she has to work two jobs. Like that's, that is, it's, that is appalling. It's like, you know, I can throw out failed state. I can throw out a lot of different, it's just that it, it is, it is ridiculous.
0: Well, let's actually look at the this because members of the culinary union current their current average total compensation is about $26 an hour and that includes benefits. Like Yeah. Benefits some like they, they like double wages sometimes. Uh if you consider like, you know, benefits within the wages as well. So that means that these people are being paid what 14-15, probably maximum 19 dollars an hour. Yeah, I mean I think
2: when I was looking at for like the individual salaries it was in the 17 to 20 dollar an hour range, which it's like yeah, you can live on that, I guess. Maybe in Las Vegas. I mean, you way out there. They got like some suburbs now and stuff. I don't know, but yeah, it's 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 way too low. But I mean, and and the real benefit here, because I mean, people might look at that and be like, these people have a union and their pay is that low. The thing that I would point to is that these workers have job security and benefits that. No one in most of the rest of the country who works those jobs has it's like mm-hmm. if you're not in a culinary union or like unite here like and you're in one of those sorts of jobs, you have no job security whatsoever your your pay probably caps out at fifteen dollars an hour, and you have no benefits at well,
0: all. and what you're pointing to there is you know whether you know a union could be doing better, it's still better to have a union than not,
1: well, it's like getting some advantages from having your union is a great heuristic for finding how, how fucked you are overall. Cause it's like once you have job security and you don't have to worry about that anymore, that's not clouding, you know, y- your mind while you're trying to think of all of the other issues on your plate. You can start to get a clearer idea of them. And it's like, oh actually our wages are far too low or oh actually my co-pays are far too high. Or and then it allows you right. to filter things down and, and tackle progressively whatever it feels like the most important issue at that time.
2: Which is exactly what they're doing with this
0: strike vote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Bethany Kahn, spokesperson for the Culinary Union, uh, told the AP the union is seeking its largest wage increase ever in its new five year contract. The union is also oh, asking yeah. for improved health care benefits and protections against automation. Ted Papa, Papa George?
2: That's that. Yeah, that's what it that uh, that's what it says is like Ted Papa George, I guess. All right. Ted Hell Papa yeah.
0: George, Culinary Union Local 226 Secretary Treasurer told uh, 8 News Now uh, Las Vegas. When asked if the union timed the strike vote in you know coordination with the upcoming Formula One race uh, in the city t- as leverage, Ted said, quote, Workers are not dumb. They're really smart. We're concerned that companies have forgotten how this town was really built and how these companies got their profits, end quote. And just another, like, class consciousness is on the rise, folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: well, and and, I mean, that's the thing. I love how the the reporters are like, hey, so there's this giant Formula One race coming up that's going to put a huge spotlight on Las Vegas and give you guys potentially a much bigger platform than you could possibly ever have. Am I telling you this for the first time? You've never heard about this, right? Like the way that it's framed is so goofy. It's like, of course they know that. Like they're not. Like, and and that's why exactly why you led with that. He's like, I never looked at the schedule.
0: Wait, you're telling me that we're supposed to know what's going on? I've been here for thirty years and I'm just clueless.
1: Yeah, I just show up every day and I wait on whoever's in town that day with no thought before or after. (laughs)
0: <laughs> like the,
2: the, the idea that they wouldn't like know that and aren't using that as leverage is just like, what do you think? They show up at like a, just a different hotel every day because they can't remember which place they were. Like, like, how it is, it's one of those things. Like, how stupid do you think workers are, man? Of course, they're using it for leverage.
0: Yeah. Well, and with the strike authorization vote, negotiations will continue. And the union, I mean, hasn't gone on strike for such a long time. We are, I mean, like, this really shows how much of a major moment this is for labor uh now Mm -hmm. is the time for big fucking gains so if the casinos refuse to pay a fair wage we might see the first culinary union strike since the 1990s in just a couple weeks
1: hell yeah so if you want uh one thing you can do is you can run over to twitter slash X, Ugh. and you can give my boy Ted Papa George a follow since he only has 201 followers. Me being the 201st, that's at Ted P226. He's posting straight fire to like five people, so help him out. Hell
0: yeah, <laughs> hell yeah.
2: Well, speaking of the moment that we're in right now, speaking of the inspirational wins, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners have been eagerly awaiting, folks. We got to talk about the WGA strike and the big, big victory that the writers won this week. It's been five months that the writers have been on strike, which I believe is the—I I, I didn't see this in, in the articles. I thought, I believe is the second longest uh, writer strike in Hollywood history, uh, of course, by writers all over the country, not just in Hollywood. But you know, it's been a long drag out fight by the workers against the intransigence of the studios. But this week, the studios finally broke. They finally admitted defeat that they could not overcome the combined solidarity of the writers and the actors and they finally sat down and negotiated an actual tentative agreement that could actually you know let the workers have a real life that isn't just going to be fucking erased by AI or, you know, massively overworked in a writer mini room that only has like two writers in it for a gigantic show, and instead agree to most of the critical demands of the WGA, ending the 148-day writer strike on Wednesday morning, September 27th. And so the 12,000 members of the WGA will now vote on whether to ratify the new three-year deal over the next couple of weeks until October 9th. The negotiating committee congratulated the membership on standing strong and winning a deal the studio said was impossible, saying, quote, what we have won in this contract, most particularly, everything we have gained since May 2nd, is due to the willingness of this membership to exercise its power, to demonstrate its solidarity, to walk side by side, to endure the pain and uncertainty of the past 146 days. It is the leverage generated by your strike in concert with the extraordinary support of our union siblings that finally brought the companies back to the table to make a deal, end quote. And so the new deal contains a lot of provisions that the studios had said for months we impossible. They're just like, these are non-starters. These could never happen. These will destroy the industry. We will never agree to these. And then tape spooling noise. Five months later, <laughs> suddenly, weirdly, they could agree to these. And uh, Ooh, yeah. I haven't seen any of the studios collapse yet. So... Uh, Among the many things that the writers won with this contract, uh, as I alluded to earlier, staffing minimums for writers' rooms for the first time based on the length of the series. Studios can no longer intentionally understaff shows to the same extreme degree that they have. If a show is going to be it's basically like if the show is six episodes or less, you have to have this many writers. If it's like seven to twelve episodes, you have to have a couple more. And if it's twelve episodes or more, you have to have more than that. So finally, actually putting some guardrails in there so the Studios can't just be like, okay, we're going to hire two of you. We're going to pay you basically script minimum, and you have to write 20 fucking episodes yourselves. And you have to do it in like two, two weeks. Here you go. Have fun. <laughs> like, So now they can't do that shit. Another huge one, residuals for streaming media will now be tied to the success of streaming shows. And now that's big in a, for a reason that a lot of people may not uh, know right away because it requires the companies to reveal streaming data to the WGA for the first time. They, uh, This is one of the things they had dug their heels in the hardest, basically saying, no, we can't tell you our viewership numbers. That would destroy our competitiveness. That would destroy the industry. Streaming would no longer exist. We couldn't possibly do
0: it. We will never do that. And now they're like, well all right fine we'll do that. <laughs> yeah, they made them open the books folks. You know, I have brought I have brought that up so many times and they actually made it happen.
2: Yeah, like that's it. This is a huge win. Now, there is a qualifier on it, which is that uh, unfortunately it it does restrict the data that goes out to the entire membership basically they 're required to meet with the WGA leadership and open their books there and Then the WGA leadership under a confidentiality agreement can present the data in an aggregate form to the mm-hmm. membership but it this is still an enormous like the, it's, this is the win that you know the workers have been looking for to finally try and be able to say objectively to the streaming companies. You can't just hire us and then get millions and millions of streams and be like, oh, we're poor. We have no viewers. Like You can't just (laughs) Mm -hmm. make shit up. (laughs) Right. Other things that were big big wins, Uh, extending a lot of already existing protections for WGA writers to comedy and variety writers who, before the strike, were being offered day rates by the studios, not like oh, we'll hire you for two two episodes. Like literally, we'll hire you for this day and then maybe we'll hire you for the next episode. Maybe we won't. Who knows? Like, which is just an untenable situation to be in. Mm-hmm. Now, much like with all the drama writers have, they've got, you know, minimums, uh, you know, minimum size writing staff, all that stuff. Then getting to the money, uh, you know, there are. This is one of the things that's a little difficult to compare in the writer strike, and, and and will be difficult to compare in the SAG after strike when that gets resolved to some of the other. Uh, you know, strikes that we cover because it's not like every writer is making a single wage. It's very, it's it's really variable, but minimum pay rates will rise 12% over the three-year contract, 50% higher than the raises that the studios were offering originally. And specifically residuals for streaming content viewed outside the United States will rise significantly by an average of 76% because of how criminally low the payments had previously been. And as an example of that, uh, the Netflix residual for a one-hour TV show used to be $6,200 a year. It will now be nearly $11,000 per year. So... That's a real big increase. Yeah. yeah. It's almost
1: double. Yeah.
2: Very needed. And then the other big one that I'm sure people were very interested in on this strike is the relationship between the writers and AI. And the new contract does include several restrictions on the use of AI, although not a total ban. Uh as a part of the new deal studios may not require a writer to use AI they cannot use AI to write or rewrite literary content without writer's permission and they must disclose if any materials provided to the writing staff by the studios was generated in any part by AI and finally the WGA also and I'm going to quote this so that I get the legal language right reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writer's material to train AI is prohibited by MBA and other law, end
0: quote. Yeah, MBA meaning Master Bargaining Agreement. Yes. And the uh, studios
2: agreed to meet with the WGA twice a year to discuss the state of, like, AI being used in writing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I have quite a lot of thoughts about this because it is significantly better than what was initially kind of being leaked out on the internet as what might be in the agreement. And for that, I do have to applaud them. But having the kind of like Marxism technology brain that I do, I worry that this isn't restrictive enough and that they really should have maybe I know that there were probably things getting in the way of this but it it might have been worth it to go for the throat a little bit more on this because no matter what's in the contract the studios are still going to try to implement ai they have so much money and steam and weird ideology behind this that you don't just need protections against you know if you know if they try to do it you need protections for when they inevitably just do it anyway
0: Yeah, I think that the disclosure of any materials uh, that have been generated by AI is the weakest part because it's kind of just a disclosure. But maybe that does give the writers themselves the ability to then just scrap it.
2: Well, I I think one of the challenges, too, though, with these provisions is that, I mean, you're dealing with a known hostile and... uh, unreliable and and dishonest source that you're dealing with and you as the writers have to try and anticipate all of the types of fuckery that they will Mm. try and do to be able to use this and that's inevitably like you're unless you could could get them to agree that it's like we will never use ai for anything which like how would you how are you going to get that them to agree to that like Aside from that, I feel like there's always going to be that like it's going to be an arms race, like Mm -hmm. and so it's one of those things where. Yeah, could those protections have been a, a bit more ironclad? I guess. But I think when we consider that any contract, even one with these enormous wins, is ultimately, you know, it's like a temporary truce in the right. class war between the writers and the studios. I, I think that these are, are pretty big wins. And and while obviously we'll see how that evolves over the next three years, I think that just the, the, the militants of this strike... The fat, and I actually think that's where the disclosure is going to be helpful, because mm-hmm. that disclosure is going to make it either harder for the companies to sneak around behind the writer's back and do stuff with AI to try and get around loopholes, or it's going to open them up to a lot of lawsuits, <laughs> Yeah, right. the the which which is fine. Let's sue the shit out of the AMPTP for their fuckery. That works for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and to be clear, I still do think this is like leagues better than, for instance, uh, the UAW's response to automation under Walter Reuther when he, they didn't heed Norbert Wiener's letter at all and just <laughs> didn't seem that concerned about it. The the union is clearly like on the war path about this AI stuff and rightly so. Um, I I just sometimes I have. Uh, concerns about the 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 specific details of tactics, but also I'm not a fucking lawyer. I don't know how any of this stuff holds up in court. So who, what do I know?
0: <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. Uh, gonna forever be litigating that letter from Norbert Wiener to the U. A. to Walter Ruther.
1: <laughs> I think yeah. about it every single day,
2: <laughs> and so. In addition to all that, they also want increases to health and pension benefits for all writers as well. Hell yeah. and the WGA says the new deal represents an increase of total compensation for writers by about $233 million per year, which I believe when you average it out is like $20,000 a year per writer. <laughs> um, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> which, yeah. Now, obviously some of that is benefits, but that's still, that's a, that's a lot, <laughs> Uh, And so on social media, Adam Conover, who is a member of the bargaining team, said, quote, these are essential protections that the companies told us to our faces that they would never give us. But because of our solidarity, because they literally cannot make a dollar without us, they bent, then broke and
0: gave us what we deserve. We won, end quote. Hell yeah, absolutely. They'll always say never. Oh, no, give up now. Well, when you don't, you can win.
2: Yeah. So this rules, uh, was really glad to see this, you know, cause the writers have been out there for a long ass five months is a long time to be on strike. And this really is a testament, I think to why that's worth it. Like, because like, again, as they've emphasized over and over again, these are wins that, you know, whether you think the contract is perfect, there are so many items in this deal that the studios were absolutely adamant could never happen. And the workers, by staying out there for five months, by standing in joint solidarity with the Teamsters, with the SAG-AFTRA, with IATSE, with Starbucks workers, with the Amazon workers, with all the other workers, that and that show of unity, showing that we can, as a community, keep ourselves going for these long-ass strikes, that they're... power that the writers were able to show that is really what won this and that's what's so incredible because we can keep building off those victories I mean I think at this point everybody is just asking okay well now that the WGA beat the AMPTP when is the AMPTP going to surrender to SAG-AFTRA because it's like you've, you've admitted with this contract that you're bullshit about we're going to crush the actors and the writers. Well, guess what? That didn't fucking work. So, <laughs> so that was a lie. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we've already seen rumblings of that. The AMPTP I saw this week has agreed to move the bargaining with SAG-AFTRA from the the studios location to the union hall, which that is uh, yeah. usually <laughs> a sign that a deal is is close. Uh, last time I saw, I believe the updates had. The bargaining session that most recently happened the other day did end without a deal, but it really seems like we're approaching the end there as the studios recognize that they weren't going to win this round. And while unfortunately, the end of the writer's strike does mean that Bill Maher will return to television (laughs) to harm Every one of our uncles, Boo. <laughs> the, the fact that the WGA was, was to keep, able to keep even shows run by arch reactionaries for the most part from scabbing mm-hmm. demonstrates the power that the writers were able to wield. And so, you know, we just want a huge shout out to the, the WGA writers for standing strong for such a long time on the picket line and, and being yet another inspiring example this year of what workers can win when they stick to their guns and don't just agree to concessionary deals
0: yeah yeah
1: and also i saw i saw a bunch of the late night hosts announce on twitter that their shows were coming back like october 2nd october 3rd but the wga is voting until the 9th so even though i don't think this will happen it would be really funny if jimmy jimmy steven and seth got back on the air for like five days and then had to shut their shows
2: back down again
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i don't think that's gonna happen but that would be very funny (laughs) yeah definitely definitely uh but i mean speaking of the sag after strike i mean let's talk about how it may be expanding right before it actually comes to an end on Monday, the 25th, video game workers in sag voted 98% in favor of a strike authorization. They have been bargaining for what is called the Interactive Media Agreement since October of 2022, and the companies have yet to bring any sort of decent proposal to the table. The companies in question are likely well known by some of our listeners. They are Activision Productions, Blind, uh, Blind Light, Disney Character Voices, uh, Electronic Art Productions, Formosa Interactive, Insomniac Games, Epic Games, Take Two Productions, Voice Work Productions, and WB Games. Uh, I mean, I, I think that uh, people might know some of the companies in that list. That's yeah, a big chunk of the industry. Yeah. As per the SAG-AFTRA website, they had hoped that the strike authorization vote would be enough pressure on the companies to make them come to the table with a decent agreement in the three bargaining sessions that happened this week. But on Friday, they announced that no deal had been reached, bringing them even closer to a strike. SAG-AFTRA National Executive Director and Chief Negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland... That's a that's a good name Uh, said at the beginning of the week, quote, after five rounds of bargaining, it has become abundantly clear that the video game companies aren't willing to meaningfully engage on critical issues, compensation undercut by inflation, unregulated use of A.I. and safety. I remain hopeful that we will be able to reach an agreement that meets members' needs, but our members are done being exploited. And if these corporations aren't willing to offer a deal, our next stop will be the picket lines, end quote. Hell yeah. I mean... I mean... Yeah, go ahead.
2: Well, I just... This is another one of those things where, like, would the video game actors have voted to go on strike if we didn't have all this big upsurge this year? Yeah, maybe, but... (laughs) the confidence to have 98% of folks be like, yeah, fuck it. Let's go on strike. Like it's, The the strikes build and feed each other, and that's one of the things that I think has been so really great to see this year.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. well, and I think that you also are kind of alluding to something that's a little important because one thing that was also reported in this, and something that maybe will bring a little bit more, uh, you know, activity to the union, is that though this vote happened over twenty days, there was really only about a twenty seven percent turnout. Now, with these actively engaged members, they were very ready to strike, but I think. That when this strike happens, because it looks like this strike is going to happen, that might actually bring this engagement up even more when people see how the union is really working. Because I think that uh, I know these are actors, so they've probably been you know unionized a little bit longer than some of the programming aspects of the video game industry. But I still think it's a fairly new industry, which might not have workers as conscious of what the union does. So this sort of action is really going to make a big difference.
2: Well, and, and I mean, this is admittedly speculation on my part, but I think there's also you know th- the fact here that you've got a lot of overlap where you've got a lot of folks who are voice actors for video games who are also voice actors for other work, whether it's for mm-hmm. animation or whether they're they're doing lives like live action acting, and so that I I wouldn't be surprised if that had you know some role to play in the low turnout because you may have a lot of people who are video game voice actors who they may not that may not be like their primary portion of their work. And so they may see it as kind of a side thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I, it's it's an interesting industry right now because um, I just had to look this up to check on the details. But I remember that there's an ongoing lockout in the Canadian voice acting industry where the Institute of Canadian agencies tried to restructure voice actors' compensation if it amounted to more than 10% of an ad's total costs. And in response, the union was like, well, we want... a." ACTRA in Canada was like, we want a new contract. And then ICA turned around and has locked them out since April, not giving them any work. Wow. Yeah.
2: Damn. Shoot, maybe we should cover that next week. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, I guess back to this, uh, Fran Drescher, president of SAG-AFTRA, said about the authorization, quote, it's time for the video game companies to stop playing games and get serious about reaching an agreement on this contract. The result of this vote shows that membership understands the existential nature of these negotiations and that the time is now for these companies, which are making billions of dollars and paying CEOs lavishly, to give our performers an agreement that keeps performing in video games as a viable career." And I mean, I do love Fran Drescher. She's she's pretty rad. Fran Drescher is great. Although I will say,
2: I don't know that it's possible for the video game companies to stop playing games. I think that's that that may be at the, I, the core I, of their entire existence. I liked existence. the I liked the pun though. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good line. But you know, I think it's this is great. You know, seeing the inspiration you know that these folks have have gotten from all the other actors and writers and folks who have been on strike lately. So and and. Traditionally, video game voice acting has been so low paid compared to so much other work. There's uh, a lot of room for improvement.
0: Although, now I'm thinking counterpoint to what you said, Dan, we're talking about CEOs here. They don't play the games, they just profit <laughs> off of them.
2: That's true. But uh
1: I will 1v1 any video game company CEO in their own company's games and win. That's a guarantee from your friend. That's John. right. <laughs>
2: Well, you know who's been not just like 1v1-ing the people in charge of this country, but actually taking on both sides this week and really coming out looking a lot better than either of them? That's the UAW, folks. So moving to, you know, of course, with the big three strike on, this is a pretty much always going to be <laughs> the, the closer story as long as the stand-up strike is going on because we had the second week of the stand-up strike by 18,000 of the 150,000 UAW auto workers at the big three this week. And it made a lot of headlines, unfortunately, and I'll try and breeze through this part pretty quickly. A lot of the headlines this week for very stupid reasons, (laughs) because a lot of what was discussed this week had nothing to do with the strike itself. It had a lot more to do with political horse race bullshit about the 2024 election and both uh, Biden and Trump trying to glom on to as much actual working class energy from the UAW strike as they could and the media doing their best to distract people from the actual important parts of what the workers are fighting for. And so, in what dominated much of the labor press uh, this week, President Biden visited striking UAW workers on the picket line on Tuesday, taking photos and voicing his support uh, such that it is uh, for their efforts, and you know, I, just I, look. I don't want to be a, an annoying sectarian contrarian and pretend that this is that the UAW should have declined the visit or something like that. I actually think the UAW who has handled all of this really, really well, um, and. Like, well, of course, I'd certainly rather the president of the United States support the UAW rather than the bosses. It is, I think, very hard for anybody taking this seriously to see this much more as just a photo op to try and shore up Biden's support in Michigan, a state that he won, I think, by a razor thin margin mm-hmm. in the 2020 election. Um, so, I, like, again, you know, I, I don't want to be a, a a broken record on this, but- despite whatever Biden said on the picket line or says any of this shit, like whenever he's had an opportunity to do something material for unions and he's had a lot of fucking opportunities. He's been a Senator for like 50 years, and he was then the mm-hmm. vice president, and now he's been the president for several years. And whenever he's had all this power, he hasn't really done much to help unions, and has in fact mostly done stuff to hurt them. Like, of course, he crushed the rail strike, he continues to give corporations gigantic federal handouts with few to no restrictions or, at, or any way to enforce additional labor regulations on them. He abandoned the PRO Act immediately upon taking office, even though he promised to pass it, and the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress. So... I I I it's I just don't want people to get confused by this and be like, Biden's actually been moved left.
0: Yeah, no, and I think it's really important. Like, those are really direct, like, on its face. Like, oh, these are definitely worker issues, but there are so many other worker issues which Biden has totally failed on, like kicking millions of people off of their health care mm-hmm. and then privatizing or eliminating protections during a, an active global pandemic.
2: I mean, ending federal funding for child care that was boosted during the, the, the worst days of the pandemic and now threatens to have, I think, something like a third of all the childcare facilities in this country close in the next year for yeah. a service that already is unaffordable. Yeah, I mean, and how, that, that massively affects millions of workers across the country. So, but I don't want to just be sour grapes, annoying person ranting about Biden. We're here to talk about the UAW, but we're also here to talk about the lying news media. because That's that's been a huge problem with this strike because look for all of my criticisms of biden he did actually visit the picket line he did voice his support for the workers as hollow as that support really is in a material way whereas donald trump Did not do any of that, but the media kept portraying it as if he was, which is something that I know a lot of folks in the labor sphere have been extremely frustrated with. And, you know, Adam Johnson and Alex Press have both been very like really on top of this hammering this home throughout the week that. The corporate media has just been lying about this, directly lying about what Trump has been doing in relation to this for weeks now. Uh, Countless articles misled readers by claiming that Trump supports the striking workers. He does not. That he was rallying with local union workers. He was not. And that many UAW workers have turned to support him because of their hatred for electric vehicles, which is a thing the media made up out of thin air. Yeah, no one said that. So, I mean, what actually happened regarding Trump this and the strike this week is that Trump held a campaign event at Drake Industries, a non-union auto parts company that has nothing to do with the big three. Uh, He was invited there by management, not by the workers, and multiple reporters who attended the event said they were unable to find any UAW workers in attendance at all, and people that they spoke to holding union workers for Trump signs, when asked, admitted they were not actually union members. (laughs) So, and, and the thing is, No one should be surprised by this. (laughs) Like, we had a whole fucking presidency of this asshole and a whole previous campaign, and they did this shit the whole time. So again, we should never also be under the impression that, like, the media was taken for a ride on this. Like... They know what they're doing with this. Their goal is to discredit unions in the minds of middle-class liberals by associating Trump with auto workers and being like, "Look, the auto workers are just racist. You're right, don't support them. You're different. You're smarter. You're better than them. You should associate with the bosses." Like that's a big part of what this is, but it is still extremely frustrating to see them just brazenly lie about all of this stuff, which is, again, why we have to understand the role of the bourgeois press as an agent of propaganda for the ruling class. But I will say the UAW's response to Trump's visit was a bit more colorful than than to Biden's, but I also thought it was extremely good. Uh, In a letter that was sent to the Detroit Free Press, UAW Vice President Mike Booth, one of the uh, new Reform Slate members, said, quote, Let me be blunt. Donald Trump is coming off as a pompous asshole. Coming to Michigan to speak at a non-union employer and pretending it has anything to do with our fight at the Big Three is just more verbal diarrhea from the former president. End quote.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fucking got his ass ether. <laughs> That's right. Destroyed. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, so, the anyways, while the media has been falling over itself, making itself look like a bunch of idiots, the UAW has actually been handling this quite well and continued to receive st- uh, support from workers all over the country since expanding their strike to parts distribution centers nationwide. Thousands of supporters showed up at picket lines across the country from unions, you know, fellow workers in the Teamsters, the WGA, SAG-AFTRA, National Nurses United, Starbucks workers. You know, Basically, if I follow a union on Twitter, I've seen folks going out to show solidarity at the UAW picket lines, which is exactly what we need. Now, unfortunately, though, there have been some other people who have been showing up at the picket lines as well, and folks that are not welcome, because as anticipated, the expansion of the strike has also meant the expansion of GM using scabs hired at just $14 an hour to try and keep the parts distribution centers, which are extremely profitable, operating.
1: Bro, imagine scabbing for $14 an hour. What the fuck? Mm-hmm.
2: Because that's the thing. Because I will say, one of the things that we've seen also is, is the companies prepping salaried workers to try and scab against folks. And I'm like, look, salaried workers— I know you're paid a lot more than $14 an hour, but whatever they're paying you to scab is not worth the lifetime of shame knowing that you decide to decide with a bunch of billionaire shitheads instead of all of the workers who you actually share your interests with. And it's certainly not worth fucking $14 an hour. Like, it's ridiculous. I know the economy is not nearly as great as uh, the press would have us believe, but come on. And... Of course, in addition to that, the companies have also begun hiring non-union trucking firms to deliver parts because the Teamster drivers have refused to cross the
0: picket lines. Oh, absolutely. I was uh, driving across states literally the, like uh, last Friday, and you won't believe how many just like random company with some automotive names are just flying across Ohio.
2: And so in response to this, picketers have, of course, done their best to disrupt the flow of scabs in and out of truck facilities. But at most facilities, of course, as usual, the police have been there to move in and say, no, you can't block these. You have to get out of the way or we'll arrest you. You know, classic, classic cop bullshit. Despite the fact that as we have seen more and more lately, especially since 2020, scabs have responded to the, uh, you know, protests of picketers with violence. On Tuesday, September 26th, at a GM plant in Genesee County, Michigan, a scab plowed their car through picketing workers, hitting five and sending at least two briefly to the hospital. Striking workers in California have also faced violence, as reported by the American Prospect. Picketers in on, Ontario, California parts distribution center have twice had guns pulled on them by scab delivery drivers. And so we've got a clip here of uh, Sean Fain responding to the violence, which I think is is really good. And so we'll play that now.
3: And I want to take a moment to acknowledge something very disturbing we've seen on a few picket lines at parts depots. We've heard of multiple instances from California to Michigan to Massachusetts of violence against our picketers from people crossing our picket line. We've had guns pulled on us, trucks and cars rammed through us, and violent threats hurled at us. And I wanna be absolutely clear, we will not be intimidated into backing down by the companies or their scabs. Our cause is just. Striking for a better future, to protect our communities, and to defeat corporate greed is not just our right, it's our duty. And shame on anyone that would engage in this violence against our members. To the public, we invite you to stand with us on the picket line if you support our cause. As you know in our union, we were red on Wednesdays. This is a tradition begun by our union family in the CWA to honor a striking member who was killed on the picket line in 1989. In our own union, during our 2019 strike at General Motors, one of our union brothers was killed on the picket line. Company and scab violence is not new. Our union's been fighting it for nearly a century. We didn't back down then, and we won't back down now. And we know America has our back. And so, in addition to, you know,
2: fighting back on the picket line, With all the violence, you know, you've you've got folks speaking to exactly why, you know, they're willing not only to go on strike, but to potentially put their bodies at risk. Because workers at GM's massive CCA, Parts Distribution Center, which is its largest, spoke with Labor Notes about their fight. Local 651 member Ray Simmons said, quote, We barely can make it, but they got generational wealth. They got enough money for their kids, kids, kids to have money. But I'm struggling just to get my kids to college, end quote. And so... In addition to this, the visible struggle on the picket line, the conflict with the scabs, everybody you know, doing all, all the, the stuff that they can in the streets, 130,000 UAW workers continue the fight to stop management's attempts to, at speed-up within the plants. The UAWD has issued a weekly strike update bulletin with tactics that workers can use to push back. Uh, And some examples that Labor Notes was able to to speak with workers about were, for instance, at the Ford Rouge complex, most workers have refused to work voluntary overtime. However, when just enough workers agreed to work that voluntary OT in order to keep the vital production line for electric F-150s running, stewards turned to a new tactic, focusing on critical inspection personnel by By talking with the torque inspectors, who are a critical part of that line beyond which like no work can happen, they were able to convince all of the torque inspectors on the line to refuse to work voluntary ot so even the fact that a small number and we're talking like a dozen workers were willing to accept the voluntary ot irrelevant because without the torque inspectors, none of their work was able to cross the line anyway.
0: yeah, and if anything, well, that just means that they're standing around getting paid a bunch extra, right. So, uh,
2: you know, and in addition, other creative forms of resistance that workers told labor notes about have included, I loved this one. Technicians refusing to use a bicycle to get around GM's massive Arlington, Texas facility because basically the, the facility is so big, it's just all of these different buildings that if you have a tech who needs to like fix a, a part on an assembly line or even just an air conditioner or something, well, they it's a long ass walk between the buildings. And so I guess they usually use a bicycle to get around and speed that up. But now they've been like, hey, I don't see any reason to rush. Yeah, I'll walk. <laughs>
1: yeah, good. Google Maps says 32 minutes on foot, so I'll see you then.
2: (laughs) 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 Yeah, and so at Stellantis' MAC assembly plant, local union officials have watched management like a hawk and moved to call any attempts by them to convert voluntary overtime shifts into mandatory overtime shifts as unilateral changes to an expired contract, which is forbidden by labor law. And so even though, of course, the bosses still sometimes try and push this stuff through, the willingness of the union workers to stand strong has prevented the management from being able to successfully speed up production at other plants to try and compensate for the lost work at the struck plants. Hell yeah. Yeah. And in addition to that, international support also continues to grow. Israel Cervantes, a labor activist from Mexico who was fired for striking in solidarity with UAW workers back in 2019, traveled to Michigan to join workers on the picket line this week. And on Tuesday, UAW workers then protested outside the headquarters of VU Manufacturing, who had shuttered a plant in Mexico earlier this year in response to workers unionizing. And I love this shit. Yeah. (laughs) Like... This rules. US, this is exact like the Mexican workers we talked about last week, who I believe were arrested for picketing in front of GM's offices in Mexico. And the UAW workers doing this at VU Mint, like, this is how, like, I want to put in like the, 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 the uncut gems clip. Like, this is how we win. Like, yeah. <laughs> th- like that, like that's what international solidarity is. Like, this is the material, how you do that. And the more we're able to do that because all of these companies have global supply chains, the harder that our strikes wherever they are, whether they're in the U S whether they're in Mexico, whether they're in Italy, whether they're in another country, it amps up the power of every single one of our strikes and is ultimately the only way to really fight back against transnational corporations. So I, I, I really can't gush enough about <laughs> how great I love this tactic is. And so, of course, this Friday, which has now become uh, like Sean Fain's weekly address day, uh, <laughs> uh, the UAW president announced the next round of escalations to pressure the companies. Progress was made, Just before, apparently, like literally minutes prior to the live stream with Stellantis, which I'll get to in a second. And so therefore, no additional Stellantis facilities will be struck this week. But workers will stand up at two major assembly plants, Ford's Chicago Assembly and GM's Lansing Delta Township Assembly. And those two plants assemble more of the massive SUVs like the Ford Explorer and Chevy Traverse, which make up a large portion of the big three's profits. And since those two companies have refused to make much progress this week, uh, they're getting a couple more of their plants shut down. And so the 7,000 workers at those two plants will bring the total UAW members on strike to 25,000.
0: I do love this weekly escalation. It's really just yes. like a, a nice like ratcheting up of what's going on as these intransigent companies think, oh, no, I made some concessions last week. I don't have to do anything this week. Uh, the fuck you don't. <laughs> well, and I, the just the fact that Stellantis was rushing
2: right before the live stream, but, no, no, please, don't strike any more of our plans. Yep. Look, see, we'll agree to the... I'm like... If you wanted a clearer demonstration that the tactics of the stand-up strike are working, I don't think you're going to find a better one. Well,
1: and it's so great because the escalation makes it so that the companies do have to make snap decisions like that. They have to be like, can we really handle it? And then when they're on the back foot, when they're coming groveling to you, like, what do we have to do to please just not get any more facilities struck this week? You're not just making gains. You're in a position of power that can be leveraged further going forward, and that's that's what I've been loving about a lot of these stories. With the whether it's the healthcare workers at Kaiser, whether it's the UAW, whether it's uh, hearing from Sean O'Brien, it's that these unions are thinking in terms of precedent and leverage mm-hmm. in a way that is so so critical to making lasting gains that can be built upon.
0: 100 emoji. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so you know, in his live stream announcing this strike fane continued to reinforce the union's message of working class unity saying quote this war isn't
3: against some foreign country the front lines are right here at home it's the war of the working class versus corporate greed the workers are the liberators and our strike is the vehicle for liberation
0: hell yeah Dude, is,
1: sean fane said class war he said it <laughs> he, he didn't put the words in that exact order but they're both there <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah so and one of the other things that i love though the way that this works in and, and so many workers have themselves portrayed it in this way is that they're basically treating these live streams from fame like it's the nfl draft like basically waiting <laughs> around with all the plants like are we going to get drafted to strike and so many workers i've seen like posted stuff about being excited which is great it's such a great way to keep the energy up on uh, and the excitement up. Uh, it it's fantastic. I mean, Corey Zaremba, who's a worker at uh, the Lansing plant that is going that just went on strike, told Labor Notes, "quote These guys wanted to go out a long time ago. We're ready. Everybody, truly, I believe in the entire membership. They're one with what's going on.
0: It's very clear. I mean, those live streams, even on Facebook, have like forty seven, almost fifty thousand viewers before it even starts." Yeah, well, and that's
1: what's interesting about the stand-up strike tactic is it's not just highly effective, but it also has a lot of prerequisites. You have to have a very unified membership that you can count on to stand up when you call out their facility or whatever. And, like, that's the kind of thing that we – it's not just that the previous leadership wouldn't have done this tactic. They also couldn't have done this tactic in some respects.
2: No, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, we talked a lot on this episode about that all of these strikes inspiring more workers. Well, you know, in addition to reinforcements from the new plants that stood up on Friday, next week we could see even more UAW members uh, on strike because workers at Mack Truck, whose co- uh, contract expires this Sunday, uh, October 1st. The 3,500 workers in in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Florida voted 98% in favor of authorizing a strike if management won't agree to a deal. And right now, I'm not sure the UAW is the union you want to test that on.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Not only have they shown that they are willing to strike, uh, they're willing to strike effectively, but also they're organizing lots of new members, which we're going to have to get to next week.
2: Yeah. Shout out to you main workers joining the UAW love to see it, but um, we'll talk about that one next week. There was simply too much news and we are already over time, but uh, just one last point before we we wrap up and move into the meme review. I did just want to note that the UAW has, has expanded how they're asking for community support as the strike expands as well. And they've said, in addition, of course, to showing up at the picket lines, which is the number one thing, they've also asked community allies, especially for folks who aren't close to a G or a, a like big three facility, To put pressure on dealerships, which buy parts from the struck parts distribution centers. And those dealerships are everywhere. And so the union put out a toolkit for supporters to organize such demonstrations, which I will link in the show notes and definitely encourage our listeners to check out.
0: Absolutely. Since it's illegal for a secondary strike uh, with, you know, other unions or workers at these, you know, these dealerships, uh, I mean, it's really important that us as a community get out there and put that pressure on uh, because, you know, it's it's just a little bit too difficult with the law stacked entirely against the workers. But uh, how about things that are stacked in favor of the workers? A bunch of images with words. Hell Yeah. <laughs> This is the meme review.
1: This, this first one made a huge impression on me when I saw it in the wild because I didn't just see the meme, but I also saw somebody posting something like, "Do you remember?" They were talking to someone. They were like, "Do you remember when we had a conversation about how even really good boomer memes still have a terrible cursed energy, <laughs> <laughs> even when you agree with them?" <laughs> and then somebody else quote tweeted that and was like, "I think boomer memes are awesome. I love them." <laughs> <laughs> so this one, well, is, this one is yeah. just. Uh, it's a, it's like like a personal sedan it looks very european maybe eastern european or something um but it's the perspective on it is all fucked up the front of the car is on the sides above the wheels the <laughs> headlights are above the wheels the the side facing windows are in what you would think would be the back of the it, car above the rear bumper it
2: it, he rotates- it looks like they basically took a picture of the car at two different angles, mm-hmm. and then they chopped the car at the middle of the grill and took one and rotated it the other way. <laughs> right,
1: yeah. It, it kind of looks like a PS1 render error.
2: <laughs> yes. In some yeah, respects. Definitely. But it, it
1: says... F- and then in big impact text, it says, first car built entirely by management since the UAW went on strike. Which I, <laughs> I was like, uh, one, great, great point. Perfect meme. Two, terrible meme. I love, I love it for the low quality. And three, the UAW has never built a car that looks
2: like that, even
1: if that car was
2: properly arranged. <laughs> My friend,
1: that is a Lada or something. I don't know what that is.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure what kind of car that actually originally was but i mean especially when we saw you know at at john deere the attempts by managers to even just drive tractors around the facility was a disaster so Mm -hmm. uh you know the more workers are forced to go on strike and the more they try and use managers to do this uh check on the quality of the parts that you're buying (laughs) but uh our next one this one was just responding to One of the most ridiculous posts that I've seen on Twitter in a while. And there were plenty of very good dunks. Uh, but So this is from a a Chris Fryman um, saying, quote, Calling strikebreakers scabs is patently dehumanizing. And if your response to this is good, you should probably engage in some self-examination,
0: end quote. Well, uh, fuck off. And then...
2: (laughs) And then the bottom of the the meme is just a, the a screen grab from The Simpsons and it's just, oh, won't somebody please think of the scabs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I did some self
1: examination. I examined myself real thoroughly. And guess what? I was right the whole time.
0: That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, our next one is, we're bringing back the Particle Boys. Now, if That's you don't right. remember what that is, that is uh, during the early parts of the pandemic, you might remember the explanation on how particles come out of people's mouths. It's, you know, the blue person spraying red particles. and or Well, I guess it's just two mannequins basically spraying particles at each other. But the blue uh, character is labeled... Uh, It's basically a conversation where it says, uh, did you wash your hands? And then the red one is, yeah, dude, literally just now wouldn't want to catch COVID. And as they are literally spraying each other with particles. And this is a reminder that the pandemic is not over. (laughs) Well, and
1: also like, washing your hands is fine. It's fine. It's a good and smart thing to do. But for COVID specifically, the evidence has been clear for so long that the fact that airborne transmission is the overwhelming majority of the problem. Every other measure you do is good, sanitizing surfaces, whatever, but you need to be wearing a fucking mask, full
2: stop, (laughs) all the time. (laughs) I encounter people at work all the time because I'm the only one wearing a mask where people will see that and they'll be like, oh, I'm going to do the fist bump thing. And I'm always like, all right, fine, I'll do it. But I always want to be like, you know, that doesn't really matter. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's, a- it's airborne. Like, that's, the- that's why I'm wearing this. I'm like, it's the whole thing.
1: <laughs> well, I go yeah. to a lot of production facilities where there's like a lot of people who you don't see all the time because they work off in some far corner. And then they-, they grab me while I'm there and they're like, hey, vending guy, I got a question for you. And then they see my mask and they're like, are you feeling all right? Why are you wearing a mask? And I'm like, Yeah, man, I feel great. Are you feeling all right? That's why I'm wearing
2: the mask. Like- <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. Yeah, th-
2: I had people like in my office this week, literally being like, "Oh man, yeah, a lot of people are going around catching COVID. I wish I would catch COVID, then I could miss some work." And I'm just like, oh, "What?" Boy. Boy, we've done a great job in this country. Wow! <laughs> if
0: only you could see the horrified look on my face. Uh, yeah, and this is
2: this is in an office where I there are multiple people with long COVID. One well, of them I mean, hasn't been able to smell in two years, and one of whom has had a cough for six months.
1: And it's it's such a fucking indictment of capitalism that even though it comes from a place of stupidity in some cases, plenty of people who like watch the news and pay attention to the figures and everything are still like, man, I'd love to put myself at risk of permanent respiratory and pulmonary illness to get three or four days off of work. That is... <laughs> Yeah. that's miserable you live in a miserable mm. miserable place if your brain thinks those <laughs> thoughts
0: yeah so yeah. always a reminder you can go back to masking if you have you know you know let down your guard or whatever you know you are totally allowed to put the you mask just, just on. put it back temporarily on. during
2: and a winter surge you don't have to answer
1: people's questions either if they're like why are you wearing a mask you can just say hi how you doing
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> I mostly just get weird looks. Like, people don't really ask about it that much anymore. But yeah. no, So the next one is actually directly relevant to one of our strikes. And I understand that at this point, this format, I think, makes this a boomer meme <laughs> uh, because the pace of the internet is such that Despicable Me is now uh, old, I guess. maybe but, I, I would almost call this a Gen X meme, a, a an understudied okay.
1: category of meme. Yeah.
2: <laughs> 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 so this is from a union, actually, Local 49 SEIU. And so this is the the Despicable Me format where Gru is presenting in front of an easel. And so Grew is labeled as Kaiser Execs, and it's, he's just flipping through the easel. And it's four panels, and it's and he's, the first couple, he's all excited. First, we charge patients higher rates and underpay hospital workers. Then we pocket billions and invest in fossil fuels and on fast food and on Wall Street. And then 75,000 workers are now going on strike. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And then the last panel is just him looking at it. Wait, 75,000 workers are now going on strike?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, absolutely. The repercussions of your actions are coming back to get you, motherfuckers. That's right. And then, uh, we always try to close on, I guess this is a little, it's still kind of a wholesome, it's just just a lighter note, uh, on this last meme, which is got a a nice, like stock image of people eating pizza and smiling. Look at all these happy people eating (laughs) pizza, just enjoying it. And, uh, the text on this is, uh, well, there's three different fonts, uh, which (laughs) is pretty cool. The first one is eat the and it's just like just regular white text with a black outline and then pizza which is like in big bold orange text with a red outline and there's little pizza slices behind it and then at the bottom in like a slightly uh you know grungy font I guess I'll say in red it says and unionize anyway and mm-hmm. uh yeah absolutely you know get there's a pizza party oh wow thanks, uh, I guess we're going to vote yes anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> that's right.
1: Well, I mean, my, th- my thinking is just like, yeah, they're always trying to bribe you. You should always take the bribe and just run away with it. Just do none of the things the bribe was for because they can't say we gave you this pizza to not give you more money. They're just saying, we gave you pizza. So you take the pizza, and then honestly, use the pizza as part of your messaging to be like, and this is why we need way more fucking money.
2: <laughs> exactly. Well, you just be like, you know, you're right. We are really underappreciated. Thanks for this mm-hmm. pizza, which doesn't cover any of that underappreciated, but I'll take the pizza as well
0: as the extra money. That's yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well- Now that we are well over time, we are going to wrap the episode. We want to thank all of you for listening. Please share the show with your friends and your timelines, etc. If you'd like to support us more directly, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage with $5 a month. It is how we are supported entirely by listeners like you. And you also get access to all of our overtime content. We just wrapped up our Unions and the Mob ILA series, so that was a really great thing that you can check out. Uh, also, if you'd like to write us a review somewhere, all the links are at workstoppagepod.com. You can also find the outro music list there. Make sure to also follow us in all the places. You know, that those links are also at workstoppagepod.com. And I guess, listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, listen to Red Game Table, and as always... Labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever.
2: Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Hey, hey, you there, treat us fair.
4: I'm talking to the big three, you right there. Woo. Hey, hey, you there, treat us fair. Right there, Woo. I'm new to the job, do the same work as Bob But make lesser money, feel like I'm getting robbed I can't even buy the same cars that I make On the salary I make, come on now, give me a break Ten years, a quarter trillion, I'm under 30,000 I want to buy a house, but yet I stay in public housing I'm living check to check, trying to figure out this disconnect We make you so much money, but yet get no respect I might lose my job, cause I ain't a hiree I do my job, but still attempts, so why you yet to hire me? I'm a weirdo with words, might say something you never heard I'm living in the ghetto, but I should be in a bird. I remember when my daddy didn't work for Kim They was making money, now the pay we make is trim You took away our pension, and retirement ain't the same I can work for you for 30, leave with nothing, that's a shame My family fit poor, I work hard, but I'm poor So please understand why we knocking on your door I don't want to fight, and I don't want to go on strike Only thing I'm really asking is you please treat us right Greedy Minds Names with needs, The land is GM and the other one is Ford. They all build cars that the workers can't afford. Now make that make sense, cause to me it don't at all. We struggle to survive while they live high the alcohol. Nine men line doing a picket with a sign. When treating us fair eliminates this waste of time. Tell Sean Fane, I really love his strategy. And tell the big breed it's never ever had to be. Woo! What's going on?
3: When we win this fight, when we right the wrongs of the past 15 years and longer, and when we set a new course for future generations, it won't be because of any president. Not the UAW president, not the president of the United States. It will be because ordinary people did extraordinary things. Our solidarity is our strength. And right now, our strength is the hope of working class people everywhere. Let's stand up and win this thing for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, for our country, and for our future. Thank you. I'm
4: just saying, all we want is to get treated fair, equal pay. We helping y'all get rich. Help us. Shout out to Shine Fang Good job you doing. Good job, mighty, mighty union.